Speed up with podcast speed up. Rationally Speaking is a presentation of New York City Skeptics, dedicated to promoting critical thinking, skeptical inquiry, and science education. For more information, please visit us at nycskeptics.org. Welcome to Rationally Speaking, the podcast where we explore the borderlands between reason and nonsense. I am your host, Massimo Pigliucci, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Julia Galev. Julia, what are we going to talk about today? Well, Massimo, today we're going to focus on the frontier of alternatives to higher education. Ooh, like so alternative medicine be- or something in, in education? No, wait, that's different. That's a different kind of alternative. Sorry. No. <laughs> no, not that. <laughs> not that one. Um, so we're going to be talking partly about MOOCs. Uh, short for Massive Open Online Courses, where anyone can enroll and watch sort of video lectures from professors and then do their coursework online, um, and and other alternatives as well that have sprung up, like uh, General Assembly, for example, where people go and take six to 12-week courses uh, on a, a specialized thing that they think they need for their career, as opposed to getting sort of a generalized uh, college degree. So, All right. Um, um, I... I kind of want to start actually by just laying out what I think the benefits of the standard higher education model are, and then maybe that'll make it easier for us to talk about to what extent we think these alternatives are actually good substitutes. Uh, After all, these are supposed to be alternatives. So yes, alternatives to what? Right, exactly. So uh, I think the sort of naive way of looking at the benefit of a college education is that it gives you human capital. So it gives you improvements in your knowledge and your skill set that will make you a better uh, employee and or a better citizen of the world or of your society, right? Yes. Um, I don't, I'm not sure that I will consider that naive, but okay, yeah, that is a very common way of, well, of putting it. So when I say naive, I mean sort of that not in a derogatory way. I mean sort of the first thing that people think of Oh, okay. Yes. As a, that an education provides. Okay. Um, and then I think you can sort of delve into it a little further and uh, discover other plausible benefits of the education, like uh, the network and connections that you get from your alumni network or from your professors, for example. Yes. Um, And then there's this third benefit or like third piece of the value of a college education, which is the signaling benefit. So maybe you've heard of the signaling model of education. Yeah. Yes, of course. You're you're investing time and money. Therefore, you're signaling that you have you're capable of certain things like commitment, for instance. Right. So the this is sort of a, a hypothesis for explaining why having a degree from uh, having a college degree, or even better, having a college degree from a you know highly acclaimed school, gives you benefits to your like the kinds of jobs you can get and how much you end up getting paid, which it does statistically. It does give you those benefits. Yes. Um, but then the question is why, and the signaling model says it's not because the school is giving you skills and knowledge that make you a more valuable employee. Um, or at least not primarily, it's because getting into those schools indicates to employers um, or to other people that you have this sort of, these innate abilities like ability to work hard, high IQ, et cetera, um, that allowed you to get into the school. And maybe the school does nothing to change your abilities, but the very fact that you were able to get into that school uh, tells employers something valuable that makes them willing to pay more for you. So So then the the question is how much uh, of the value of the education comes from 
improvements to human capital, how much of it comes from network effects, how much of it comes from signaling. Well, but, um, but, and I but, think that alternative education uh, has different strengths and weaknesses depending on which of those pieces of the higher education puzzle you're So, but why, th- why, why would anybody consider those as necessarily mutually exclusive hypotheses? I mean, it's, it seems oh, pretty clear to me. Yeah, that, yeah, they're not know, mutually exclusive. Right, okay. I think the, the question is not which one of these three is the benefit of higher education. It's just what's the breakdown? Yeah. You know? Well, that might be difficult to figure out, however, right? Because it's kind of hard to do the, the controlled studies, for one thing. Um, yeah, it is. There's been some kind of interesting um, economic research on, for example, teasing out the signaling versus other things question. So you can look at, uh, you can sort of like look at the students who got into the schools and went versus the students who got in and didn't go for various reasons. And it's not a perfect, it's obviously not random which students end up going out of the students who get in. (laughs) Um, You can sort of look at, you know, those students who had the ability to get into college, how did they end up doing? Um, And you can also, there's been some research on just how much do students learn in college. This is like directly investigating the uh, improvements to human capital theory. And that research, I think we might have touched on that a couple years ago when we did an episode on education, but that's pretty depressing. It was something, like the most recent study I read, the result was something like over a third of students showed no improvement right, that's from the, over their four years in college yeah, on sort of writing and critical thinking. That's not exactly correct, but it's close, yes. No? So this was uh, oh, from a, um, a report that came out a couple of years ago called Academically Adrift. <clears throat> and actually the comparison was between entry, you know, first-year students and third-year students, which is still pretty bad. Um, well, you know, they didn't, it's they, possible we're thinking of a different study. I thought the one I read was looking at four years of college. Um, go on. It may be, it but, but very it's... very similar, at least. But the only one I know of is this, uh, this academically adrift uh, study, and, which was a fairly large study across a bunch of different universities. It was looking at both private and, and uh, public universities um, and different sizes and so on and so forth. So actually, it actually was pretty well done, but, uh, but it mm-hmm. turns out that they followed the court for the, the first three years, not until the last year. At any rate, the thing... Yes, some of the results were, in fact, pretty depressing. Is like particularly the one you mentioned, which is you gi- you can give a test about general cr- uh, critical thinking skills, comprehension ability, you know that sort of stuff to students at the entry at the moment in which they enter college, and then you can give the same uh, exact test, you know, three years later, and the results are that about a third of it, of those students doesn't really statistically move uh, in the predicted right. direction, which would be improvement. Now, first of all. Um, as a college professor, that does not um, uh, surprise me at all. Yeah, Simpl- as a former college student, that does not surprise me. Yeah, either. I mean, for one thing, because um, quite frankly, uh, and this this perhaps is a sort of much broader conversation than just what the the, the uh, focus on alternative um, ways of, of achieving higher education that we're talking about now. But generally speaking, it seems to me that a fairly large section of you know n- number of students in colleges in the United States simply shouldn't be in college, period, uh, for a variety of reasons, either because they're not mature enough to, uh, you know, to uh, take up that sort of challenge. Maybe they should just go out in the marketplace, find a job, and then later on uh, come back to school, which some of them do, of course. We, you know, the the re- so-called returning students, students that actually did exactly what I just said, are usually the favorite of professors because they're mature, they know what they want, they're, they're focused, they, they understand the value of what they're doing, so they're not, they're not wasting your time as well as their time. But the other thing is, you know, a lot of students, unfortunately, in the United States these days uh, graduate from high school, then they probably shouldn't. 
at least not according to international standards. And so if you right. get in, in, in at the college level, but you actually have barely the ability to comprehend a complex uh, text or, or barely the ability to put together you know, an essay that is actually legible and, and grammatically correct, then you probably, you know, I'm not surprised that you don't make much progress. Now, the interesting thing about that study, however, is, first of all, of course, there is also the reverse way of looking at it, which is, well, two-thirds of the students actually do make progress. So it turns out, you know, you, could, you do have some evidence that, in fact, uh, 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 college learning does improve those particular skills. By the way, these, tag, these tests are interesting because th these are actually sophisticated tests, the one using the report that I'm talking about. They're not just, you know, multiple-choice questions kind of thing. And they're not, right. factual, do, not do about factual knowledge. Among the students who did show improvement, do you remember what the average amount of improvement was? No, that one I don't. Uh, and we, but yeah, my you know, my big memory was that it was not a high, not not a lot of improvement for the ones that I honestly improve, don't remember. But that's the, you know, I can be easy, easily be checked. But the thing is, um, the, the thing that I remember the most from that report, um, which again doesn't surprise me, but it's uh, what surprised what does surprise me is, is how many uh, how many people just don't seem to be getting this very uh, basic point, was this that. In all the cases of significant improvement, and regardless of the discipline, so you know, independently of whether you were studying philosophy, math, science, you know, sociology, whatever, there are mm -hmm. two and only two predictors of uh, high academic achievement, and those are intensive reading and intensive writing. The only courses in mm -hmm. which students learn anything at all were the ones in which they had to write a lot and read a lot. Now, that you, you know, the reaction to that should be a, a duh. Clearly, that would be the case. But the, the problem is that the, the, the trend has been uh, in, in for many years now to actually uh, ask less and less in terms of both writing and, uh, and reading from our students. And so I'm not surprised about the overall um, disaster. Right. Well, as one brief caveat, I, I could be wrong about this, but I imagine that students in, say, math classes where they don't do a ton of reading but do spend a lot of time working through problems would actually be making yeah, yeah, improvements, that, but maybe not yeah. improvements measured by these sort of general thinking skills tests. No, no, no. That, yeah, that, that counts actually as, as um, um, you know, mathematical, doing mathematical exercises counts as quote-unquote writing. Oh, intensive in, writing. Yeah, so it's, it's, in, oh, it's an, any intense exercise that has to do with putting right. things on, you know, black and white. Right. And, and anything right, that, it, that counts as intensive reading of the, su of the, of the subject matter. Anyway, right. so back to the general idea of higher education. Um, so, fine. So that's what we expect from the, the, the so-called so naive version of higher education. Actually, the way you br br uh, broke it down um, is, was it three points? But, it, but in fact, one of those mm -hmm. two, your first point was actually two different things, right? One is we expect... Yeah, oh, it's a bunch of things. Yes. Actually. But it's one was, uh, you know, to, to separate things clearly, one... Um, reason, of course, students uh, are supposed to go to college is because uh, in order to get com become competitive in the job market, get a better job, mm -hmm. get a higher paying job, whatever, or get a job at all, for that matter. Uh, the other one is um, what you refer to as, you know, sort of a learning to become a citizen of a democracy, a, you know, rounded person, a person who thinks about choices in his or her life, that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. Those are actually distinct. Oh, definitely. And they clearly right. are, you know, they, obviously colleges push both of them, uh, in the but but the difference there is, for instance, that colleges that are uh, that put more emphasis on general education and on, you know, so they qualify themselves as as liberal arts education colleges. They actually emphasize 
the latter, the second, the second point is, you know, you come out of this as a better rounded person, you're able to think more broadly and all that. And by the way, you can also get a job, as opposed to say a trade school, um, or, a, or, or a college that emphasizes the job market where that's the emphasis, and there is little or no mention of, oh, by the way, we also would like to, to produce people that are thinking, um, and, you know, critically thinking and members of, of, of society. Right. So starting to look at alternatives to the standard higher education model, like MOOCs, massive open online courses, uh, the, question, the first question and the reason that I tried to break down higher education into those various benefits is, which of the benefits is it trying to substitute for? And I think MOOCs are only trying to substitute for the uh, improve human capital, because obviously there isn't really that much signaling benefit you get right. from having enrolled in a course that anyone can enroll in. Um, right. and also like relatively low investment to enroll in it as opposed to applying for college. And then there's also no real network effect because you're learning individually from your home computer. Right. Um, so it could only be the human capital benefit. And then, you know, within that, are MOOCs trying to make their students better citizens of the world? Are they just trying to give them specific skills that will make them you know, more employable and at higher wages? Um, and then finally, the question is... Uh, in terms of being able to answer whether MOOCs are a good substitute, the question is, are colleges actually doing those things? Because, you know, if MOOCs aren't doing a great job of it, but the colleges also weren't doing a great job of it, then you, you know, can't really fault the MOOCs. Yeah, so. well, I, I personally have rather little doubt that yeah, colleges yeah. Sorry, are no. doing a good job at it. Um, but um, and uh, but the question is, you know, that's it's an empirical question, and of course it has been studied. It's not like we're the first ones to rise it. But the, the, the thing about MOOCs, I think you're right that... Um, Yes, the, the MOOCs are trying to substitute for that particular function of colleges. That is, or, or, or do better than colleges in this, in the in sort of the content-based, um, you know, uh, in the content that is that is that is of the courses that is aiming at getting you a better education in order to get a better job. The, the, the networking, if it, it exists at all, it certainly does very little, and the signaling therefore does very little if it exists at all. Now the problem is. Um, MOOCs are, of course, a very, very recent um, uh, phenomenon. I mean, the, the very right. term was coined by uh, David Cormier of the University of Prince Edward Island in 2008. So we're talking about a very recent. Of course, coining the, yeah. the, term, the term is not the same as getting things started. But in fact, most MOOCs are actually more recent than that. Um, yeah, like 2011 was then when I first heard of them, I think, yeah. or 2012 even. Right. Yeah. The New York Times declared, the, the or, or was it Time Magazine, one of those two declared that, I think there was the New York Times, the 2012, the year of the MOOC. Which, the year of the MOOC. Yeah. That's which, by the way, it's part of the general hype <laughs> behind the whole, this whole yeah. thing. I mean, 2012 has passed and the MOOCs are still a very, very small minority of, um, of um, educational offerings. Now, that could change, of course. I mean, that's, that's why we're talking about this thing. Uh, but right now, it seems to me that the, the sample is pretty small, uh, sample of MOOCs, and also very biased because the overwhelming uh, of, uh, majority of courses offered in, in, MOOC, in a MOOC, set, MOOC setting are technical, although there are a number of, of uh, you know, liberal arts education. There's a number of philosophy uh, courses, for instance, or history courses and something like that. But there's a lot of you know, computer science. There's a lot of mm -hmm. uh, specific applied things. Very few, if any, complete programs. I think there is one master's degree that is entirely now offered uh, as a MOOC, um, but it's very, there's very few. Um, and of course, we don't have much of a history. I mean, not, people haven't graduated from MOOC-only uh, programs. Uh, people are taking courses, but the uh, 
completion rate is incredibly low. Uh, it's incredibly small. It's it's like it's usually in the in the in the single digits. It's around six, seven, eight percent. Which, if you were in a regular college, would be considered abysmal. Uh, you'd be fired right. immediately. Right. So these are people uh, who who just finish all of the pieces of their class. Right. Who complete right. the class this and not get you know a people who pass the test above a certain threshold. No. Right. It's just right. right. So the overwhelming majority of people don't complete. Now, the interesting thing that I found out doing some research about this is that you know the one perhaps um, cynical, uh, but but at the very least skeptical way of looking at MOOCs is that this is nothing new. This is just that another yet another example where we have a technology that allows us to do um, the same thing that we've been doing for a, for a long time, that is lecturing. And, and and does it in a novel technological way. Now, we can talk about that in, in a minute because I think that's an interesting aspect. But if you're looking at the history of that sort of approach, you know, you can go back all the way to the 1890s when, when the first uh, correspondence courses started being uh, commercialized. And then in the 1920s where the first um, radio-delivered courses were, were being experimented with. NYU was one of the first universities to start you know, um, radio-delivered courses because that was, of course, the technology at the time. And then later on, in the 1950s and 60s, uh, TV was the big technology. And sure enough, again, NYU actually studied a program of you know, delivering their lectures, some of their lectures via TV. All of those failed abysmally. Um, you know, the, 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 the uh, completion rate was very low. Uh, the system never really, uh, it was always all of these things, all of these innovations were always uh, ailed as, you know, the next big thing. And they all pretty much failed and, and um, with very little impact on the brick and mortar university. Now, this may or may not be the case for MOOCs. I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm not saying that, that just because there's those presidents, that's necessarily going to be the case. But I mean, it's an interesting observation, so historically speaking. It is. And I do have a general prior that things rarely live up, fully live up to the hype around them, which, you know, would certainly apply to MOOCs as well. Yes. That, that prior would apply. Um, there are some other a priori reasons to think that MOOCs would be more likely to be a successful model than listening to lectures on the radio. Um, Such as? There's more opportunity for interactivity, for example. Yes. Um, but I want to... Not, not a lot. We should the, talk about that in a minute. But yes, go ahead. Yeah, sure, sure. Um but first, I want to question the uh, the labeling of MOOCs as a failure because of the low completion rate. Uh, so part of that could be due to the fact that people just don't feel as much engagement with the course if they're not physically going to a location and interacting or at least seeing the professor in person. Right. That seems totally plausible to me. But I also would suspect that a lot of the people who start the MOOC and fail to complete it are the same kinds of people who at a college would read about a course online and maybe attend the first session and then decide not to register for it. Um, and so they're not counted as, you know, having failed to complete the course because they never really started the course. It's just for MOOCs, the, the barrier to trying it out is so low that anyone who thinks they might want to take the course is going to start it because it's free and easy. Um, so just, I think you're, we're comparing two sort of different things there when we look at the completion rates of MOOCs versus online courses and that only part of the low completion rates for MOOCs indicates a problem with the MOOC model and part of it is actually a feature, not you, a bug. You may be right, although I, f I think at the moment this is sort of you know, speculative. Um, yeah. It's true that, however, we also have comparisons of um, completely online but not MOOC type courses. You know, universities have been like offering... Like Khan Academy? 
Well, I mean, it just standard colleges like my own, you know, but like City University of New York has been offering online courses for a long time now, and oh, you know, entirely yes. online courses, standard classes, uh, but that are taken entirely online. And they, we also offer a number of courses that are so-called hybrid. The hybrid courses are essentially half of the time or half of the uh, the, the hypothetical lecture time uh, is in, in an actual classroom, and then the ad, the other half of the meetings are online, right? So so part of the material and part of the introduction is online, part of it is in person, and we do have data for how well those two fare with each other, you know, compared to each other, and it turns oh, yeah. out that it's pretty clear that the the hybrid courses do better. Uh, there is a much higher uh, completion rate. There is, you know, the higher student satisfaction. Students tend to stick more to it, which would favor the hypothesis that yes, there is something about the uh, the in-person interaction um, with n- not only with the faculty but also with fellow students that mm-hmm. sort of makes a difference. And that that's an interesting comparison because those are actually e- exactly the same kind of course. I mean, we're talking about you know the same critical thinking or logic one on one or whatever. Uh, except that one is offered online, one is offered hybrid. Interestingly, the Although, hybrid courses tend to see, do more even... More serious students might be more likely to take the course where you have to actually go to a place. Uh, I'm sorry, more what students? More, more serious students. Um, students may, who are maybe so. More likely a priori to finish. Maybe so, but we're talking about, you know, in this case, we're talking about actual college courses, which means that the enrollment procedure and all that is exactly the same as in for all, for all other courses. Now, the interesting thing is that there seems to be some, some preliminary evidence. Again, the, the, the data are not that, that large at this point yet, but there seems to be some preliminary evidence that the hybrid courses are doing better even than the brick-and-mortar-only courses. That is, that the hybrid courses really have this interesting thing that, that they seem to be offering the best of both worlds, right? There's, there's some interaction with the professor. There's some you know, in-person commitment and discussion. But, that there is, but then there is also the taking advantage of the technologies, the interactivity of the technology, the video on demand, the fact that you can do your homework at whatever you know, pace you want um, over you know, at whatever time you want. So that's, that to me is actually a very, a very interesting finding. That um, is interesting. And I guess I would have expected, I hadn't thought about it, but I would have expected, I think, the the way the online courses are structured to be better than the in-person courses if you ignore the effect of like being in person, um, just inherently being good. Because it often happens that when I'm in a lecture, I want to sort of speed up through a part that I already know so that I don't get bored, or I want to sort of pause so that I can digest what the professor has said. And of course I can't because I'm in person. Right. Um, so to the extent that even just like being able to pause the lecture, right. uh, I, like I would expect that to be helpful, right. along with the sort of spacing out the exercises throughout the lecture instead of doing them all at the end. Sure. Et now there are other aspects of, of MOOCs that are, um, I think, problematic. Let me, let me bring up a couple and see, see what you think. Uh, one of them is that I suspect that very soon we'll lose one of the O's, the open. Uh, because, you know, uh, at the moment, most of these courses, with very few exceptions, are free. In fact, that's part of the whole idea. It's, they open. But, of course, they don't make any money. And, <laughs> and of course, you don't expect these, these are being pushed uh, by both large universities and by uh, for-profit corporations. So it's clear that at some point, somebody's going to want to make a buck out of these things. And, in fact, sure enough, in some cases, it is already happening. Let me, um, let me look at the actual data that I have here. Um, 
there is. But while you're looking for that, why is it problematic if they charge money for their courses? I would expect it to still be much cheaper than actually because, enrolling in a standard Because college. they're not open anymore, right? <laughs> well, okay, so then we call them mocks instead of moocs. Right. Why is that a problem? Well, it's they're a problem because the hype is surrounding it is is that they're piggybacking on these these whole idea of open source, open uh, open publishing, and open everything else, and people are being hooked by in in that sense. And at some point, it's going to be a, a perfectly predictable um, uh, bait and switch situation. When we were talking about you know the the value, so uh, the, the the idea that the one of the O's is soon going going to drop out because of course people want to mm-hmm. make a buck out of uh, out of it, which is fair enough. But um, so the first one I think to do that, as far as I can tell, is. Um, uh, Udacity in collaboration with San Jose State University. In uh, in the spring of 2013, they announced their first entirely MOOC-based master's degree, and their cost and that cost seven thousand dollars, which is, of course, to be fair, a fraction of what a normal tuition for a master's degree costs. Right. But the thing is, you're sharing that um, that that material and that interaction with thousands of people which is definitely not what happens in a master's degree. A typical master's degree, classes are very small. You, know, you, you, you take classes with another 10, 15, 20 people. You have direct interaction and, 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 uh, um, and involvement with, with the faculty. So the question that one has to ask is, well, okay, maybe cheaper, 7,000 as opposed to, I don't know, 10 or 15. Uh, but are you really getting anything even remotely close to it? The company is certainly getting, making a big buck out of it because – if you multiply, if these things are going to be successful, you multiply seven thousand dollars by you know potentially tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of participants. This is a huge return on something that isn't going to cost them any more uh, than the basic investment. You know, it's not like they're paying uh, that much more per student because they don't have a brick and mortar uh, operation, so they don't have you know operational cost cost of any sort. Uh, other than you know paying the faculty who is teaching the course, and probably in that case uh, you, you might will see will see how the business model works. But in a lot of cases, I assume faculty are going to be paid once to develop the course. That's what happened already. What happens already for a lot of online courses, not not MOOCs. Mm-hmm. And once you've done that, that's it. The, the the university or the company owns the the copyright and can uses can use your lectures as many times as you, as they want. So. It seems like we're already uh, going toward a clear uh, situation where the MOOCs may be become mocks and they may become a huge cash cow for universities and private companies with a much lower uh, quality in terms of interactions with you know, other students and with faculty than standard courses offer. So that to me is a, it's well, a concern. If the profit margins are as high as you make them sound, then there's this great opportunity for other mocks to <laughs> get into the business and charge $3,000 instead of $7,000 uh, or 5000 or whatever um, and still make lots of money and, you know, harvest much of the business that the original $7,000 mock was getting. Spoken like a true capitalist, right? yes. Uh, and I suppose that's the same reason why we pay, I don't know, outrageously high uh, uh, cable fees, I guess, every, every month. I mean, yes, we can have that discussion. But the fact, the, fact, the fact is that if people think, as they have been led to believe up until recently, you know, the, 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 the hype in the, in the press is incredible. You know, the, the people are calling these things the Ivy League for the masses. Ooh, wait a minute. <laughs> 
Uh, it's not yeah, at all I mean, an Ivy League. I don't for think the either of us believes the hype that this is. But most you know, people already do. immediately changing higher education for everyone. That's clearly hype. That but, is clearly. But there hype, is still this question, question is, of how much should we expect them to change the model? Right. Okay. Um, the, the second concern that I was bringing up, other than the cost, is this, which is, is the MOOCs are going in exactly the opposite direction of everything that research in pedagogy has been teaching us for the last 30 years. If there is one, well, if there is three things um, that research in pedagogy have been uh, teaching us are the following. The first two I I just mentioned earlier when we talked about um, the report on uh, academic academically adrift. Oh, intensive reading and intensive writing? Intensive writing, that's Mm -hmm. right. Now, intensive reading, I suppose you can still assign people on MOOCs to, to read a lot of stuff, although how would you, you know, even remotely um, make sure or enforce that that is the case. It's it's, up to, you know, it's, it's already difficult in a brick-and-mortar situation. I mean, I constantly have to, to um, pay a lot of attention to, you know, make me, and, and put a lot of effort into convincing my students to actually read what they're supposed to be reading. And I assure you, it's not high. It's not very high intensity. But in terms of writing, uh, you know, Somebody, if you if you do if you do a lot of writing, somebody's got to grade that sort of stuff. And the overwhelming majority of MOOCs right now are doing the obvious thing, which is they're going for multiple choice questions, which is what you almost have to do if you're talking about ten, you uh, thousands or tens of thousands. Students. Yeah, exactly. Right. You know, it's not, we're not going to have faculty or even teaching assistants that are capable of, of, of uh, you know handling that sort of um, uh, weight um, you know work um, easily or in fact at all. It's just not possible. The third factor. Um, that, I, that I mentioned that we learned from research in pedagogy is that the smaller classes, the better. <laughs> because, of course, there's more interaction, there's more discussion, there's more you know, exchange between the faculty and the students. And, of course, in the case of MOOCs, we're going exactly the opposite direction. Not only the classes are getting larger, they're getting massively large. Now, people that are in the MOOCs do realize these, these problems. They're, they're aware of these problems. Mm-hmm. That's why they come up with alternatives such as you know peer-to-peer interaction you know discussion groups and all that sort of stuff but even right. there oh, the evidence hard to enforce yeah exactly i mean in there the evidence is already pretty um uh, mount, m- mounting pretty 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 um disturbingly that first of all large discussion groups quickly degenerate into uh, you know basically ideological discussions trolling is, is widespread you know that sort of stuff and also the peer-to-peer, it's helpful that there is pedagogy that does say, pedagogy research that does say that peer-to-peer is helpful, but it's not a substitute for, you know, uh, a grading, uh, you know, thoughtful grading and thoughtful, thoughtful discussion with an actual faculty. You do learn something from a peer-to-peer uh, uh, interaction and review, but it, it's not, it's not going to substitute. Uh, it's not going to be a major model. And even that model, at any rate, at the moment, is a minority within the MOOCs. The majority of MOOCs, MOOCs courses are simply based on multiple choice questions, which we know and we have known for a long time are absolutely the worst way to test somebody on a subject matter. Right. Well, I wouldn't, I would not expect MOOCs to be a good substitute for small classes led by a talented professor uh, with a lot of discussion and interaction and personalized feedback. Yeah. But. Frankly, even a mediocre. Wrong, but I don't think that represents the majority of college classes today. I, I think that I think they're the not even. Of college classes are a single professor lecturing to hundreds of students. It's you know one to many. It's not one to one. Well, okay, that that is definitely a problem. But first of all, that tends to be a problem for introductory classes. Not advanced classes are usually not that way. Um, at Brick- really, even at yeah. large state schools. Yes, 
Yes, I mean, in, you know, I've I've taught at large state school university, and I see the the Stony Brook University and, and City University in New York, and all of them, all the advanced classes have small uh, number of students. Usually, you know, the, depend it depends on the course, of course, and depends on the on the university, but they usually are in the uh, 10, 20, 15, 20 students. So, um, mm-hmm. which are much more conducive, of course, to, to that sort of thing. But, but the, by point, you're simply stressing my point because uh, my point is that, that colleges have been aware of that and it's a, that's a question of resources. That is, we would like to have introductory classes uh, with a small number of students. Of course, in order to do that, what do you, the only way to do that is to increase the, the, the ratio you know, uh, of, of faculty to students. And that costs money. That costs right. or money. of faculty plus TAs to students, which is right, which costs another less factor money. Factor in this whole issue. Yes, the TAs I don't, I don't cost much less money. Any of the the uh, coverage of the terrible job market for graduates of PhD programs, yep. but it's it's pretty depressing. It, um, it is as the number of faculty possessions stays the same or even goes down as colleges start relying more and more on adjuncts instead of on tenure track faculty. Right, um, and the Colleges are still accepting the same number or a growing number of uh, people into their PhD programs. So you just have this huge supply glut, uh, sorry, huge demand glut and limited supply. That's correct. So that's correct. I don't know how, like, that that factor seems relevant actually to how uh, useful we expect the MOOCs to be because it seems plausible that we're reaching some kind of turning point in how uh, the market for TAs works as people are sort of becoming more and more aware of, of this problem. And if there are fewer TAs, then that puts a crimp in the small discussion sections led by TAs model that you were describing. Yes, but not only that, but the, the, the thing is that the the whole adjuncts, um, as uh, often they're referred to, um, uh, adjunct professorships, that is mostly graduate students who do teaching who are teaching assistants, but, but often this becomes sort of a career for years for somebody after graduation, after PhD. It's, it's a disgrace. Um, you know, I get, uh, as a chair of a department, I get dozens and dozens and dozens of applications from prospective agents uh, every year, and I usually cannot hire a single one of them, uh, or, or maybe one or two on top of what the ones that I already have. And that means, of course, there's a lot of very, very cheap labor. Uh, these people are, quite frankly, exploited. Uh, they're paid, you know, even by large university, by large Top universities, Yale University doesn't pay more than something like three thousand, three thirty five hundred dollars a course, um, and that which means which comes out to what, like twenty thousand dollars a year? Yeah, at best. <laughs> and typically, it is uh, without or with limited benefits, so you don't get healthcare, you don't get, you know, uh, sometimes you do it. That depends on the university, and depends on how many courses you teach. It's 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 a really demanding and really frustrating uh, situation that can go on for years and years. So I don't think that we should encourage universities in going in that direction. But it seems to me that MOOCs will do that and then much more. You know, they will escalate the situation because you, they do have to have a large number of uh, teaching assistants if they want to guarantee a, a minimum number of, you know, minimum amount of, of quality in what they, when they do. And so what I think we're going to go into is, um, you know, the reason some universities are actually uh, already taking positions um, pretty open positions against it just in the last few months against MOOCs. Uh, just in the last few months, uh, the um, both Amherst College and uh, Duke University have openly rejected uh, any partnership with, with MOOCs. 
and individual faculty also are, that have been involved initially um, uh, with the MOOCs have now decided to sort of take out the you know steps outside of the of the programs, and the reason for that is because they think that they're going to un- they're undermining that the MOOCs may be simply too um, uh, tantalizing for university administrators who already um, have been exploited an underclass of faculty essentially. Uh, and that what we're going to create is a two-tier university system. Uh, one, the Ivy Leagues for very, very rich people who can actually afford the brick and mortar, uh, you know, direct experience with the faculty. And then the, the MOOCs for everybody else where, yes, you pay comparatively little, but you get close to nothing in, in, uh, in return in terms of actual education. So those are all serious worries. I mean, that doesn't mean that they cannot be overcome, and it doesn't mean that, you know, obviously we'll see, this is an empirical question, we'll see what happens over the next several years. But there are, there are very, re- very good reasons to worry about the whole MOOC um, idea. Well, okay, so I want to... You're not convinced. Before we <laughs> have to stop, I want to just focus yeah. on the uh, students getting no benefit out of MOOCs. Um, Okay, so briefly, I think there are things that we could do that would increase the average benefit that students got out of MOOCs. Like, for example, if you had to put up some amount of money to start the class, and then you would get the money back if you finished the class, say. Yes. Uh, I would expect that to substantially increase the you know, engagement with the class. Yeah, that's true. There, um, there is evidence. There is evidence that that actually does work. Although, so far, at least, not substantially. But yes, it does. It does work. Well, I, people who pay I, a fee you might be thinking of different evidence than me. But the evidence I've seen is that Coursera tried having students pay to take the class, and I don't think they had. I don't think they got the money back upon finishing. So I would still expect there to be some kind of sunk cost effect that would cause students to stick around. But I would expect it to be an even bigger effect if students could get the money back by finishing the class. Yes. Which I don't think has been tested. But if they're getting the money back, who's making the profit? <laughs> oh, yeah. So this is right. this is still just on the MOOC model. Yeah, there could right. You could establish something similar if you have a mock model where you're paying to take the class and you right. get some amount of the money back upon finishing. Right. Something but I like honestly that. don't so, think that the MOOCs are... Uh, have any prospect whatsoever of surviving the next few years unless they do become okay. mock. You know, okay, again, that's fine. Somebody so has to make just the money. To illustrate <laughs> the principle of sure. pre-committing and uh, having some sure. some skin in the game, sure. so to speak. That works. That could help with the engagement problem. Yeah, that um, works. And then I think that the main benefit of the MOOCs or the, the benefit I expect to be the strongest is for students who are already pretty motivated and self-directed. Yeah. So just to unpack the idea of getting benefit out of MOOCs, there's the benefit you get if you're just sort of an average student coasting through or trying to sort of, you know, do okay or just finish. And then there are the students who are like, I want to get as much as possible out of this class and I will exploit it to the greatest extent I can. And to those students, I actually expect the MOOCs to be right. quite valuable. Maybe not as valuable as being in a small group yeah. with a professor who you can talk to, but uh, still just having that sort of curated set of lectures and readings and suggested exercises and opportunities to interact with other students I expect to be pretty helpful. Um, And that, again, solving that problem of helping the poor students who have the innate ability and motivation is not as big of a problem to solve as helping all students by any means, but it's still something. Right. Not only, yes, I think you're right, but in fact, there is evidence, again, from the comparison between online, standard online courses and brick-and-mortar courses, 
um, that, so outside of the MOOC experience, there's already evidence that you're absolutely right. Uh, students are, that are already self-motivated and you know, enthusiastic about the material, whatever it is, uh, they do actually very well in online courses, online-only courses, and everybody else falls behind. Now, to me, that's, first of all, that's actually a very large worry because you know, this, we're, we're going to end up helping only the self-motivated students who are the ones that actually need the least help to begin with. But even those students are going to suffer because, in fact, again, the evidence is that even those students do better in, in hybrid courses rather than online-only courses. And again, we're talking well, still outside of Well, they're suffering relative to other more expensive things they could be doing, but it's not clear they're suffering on net when you when you factor in the money that they're spending and the time and so on. Okay, the money that they're spending, it's a different issue, and, and that is a big issue in, in uh, higher education. Uh, higher education in the United States has gotten, gotten more and more expensive. It has, uh, in fact, gone up over the last several decades at a much higher rate than healthcare costs, which is completely bizarre. It is arguably the most expensive education in, in, in the world, certainly in the Western world. And yes, we do have a problem there. But, um, but I think that there are the, the idea of addressing that problem doesn't necessarily pass through um, you know, the idea of dismantling the, the brick and mortar universities. After all, other countries are doing just well with much lower uh, tuition fees than, than the American system. So there is something really broken about the tuition fees. Uh, in the United States, and one can argue that there is, you know, there's a whole stand, a set of reasons for it. One of the best uh, um, uh, illustrations of, of the problem, you know, graphical illustrations of the problem that I saw was a few months ago in the Chronicle of Higher Education, where they sort of uh, plotted over the last several decades the increase in tuition rate uh, on, on average in American colleges, and then they compared it with the rate of increase of faculty. Um, expenditures, not salaries, but expenditures as in, you know, how much mm-hmm. the faculty cost at a particular university. And uh, and the two lines were essentially, um, um, uh, you know, the, the, the faculty line was, was had a slower slope than, lower slope than the, than the increase in, um, uh, significantly lower slope than, than, than the, the one in increase in tuition. The one that was parallel, and in fact even going even f- steeper than the increase in tuition, was the line accounting for the expenditures for administrators. At universities, mm-hmm. the administration has exploded at universities. I mean, pe- people have no idea just how much um, we have had. Now we we we've gone to it from a system a few just until a few years ago, where most university administrators were actually fa- faculty who were doing part time the job of deans and provosts and things like that, or even when they were doing it full time as provosts or presidents, they were doing it for a few years and then go back to the to the teaching uh, faculty. Now we have professional deans and, and, and provosts and so on and so forth. They pay themselves huge salaries. I know because I actually look at the salaries of these things. When I'm on the, on the, mm-hmm. on the um, uh, personnel and budget committee at City University of New York, so I actually know what the salaries are. And, of course, there's, a, there's, a, there's been a huge increase in the number of ministers. We used to have you know, a president, a provost, and, and, and a dean in, uh, in, lower, you know, in order of, of, of more local influence. Now we have presidents, several vice presidents, a number of assistant uh, provosts, a huge number of assistant deans. And it's not clear what all these people are doing uh, to begin with, other than paying themselves handsome salaries. Right. Um, so, you know, th- well, there, are, there are many reasons, of course, why the costs of, of uh, higher education have gone up in the United States, but certainly that is one of them. Right. Yeah, I'm sure we could do an entire episode on the costs of higher education. Probably. <laughs> and unpacking that, but we are all out of time for our MOOCs. For our alternative education episode. So, do you want to wrap up and move on to the picks? 
Welcome back. Every episode, Julie and I pick a couple of our favorite books, movies, websites, or whatever tickles our rational fancy. Let's start, as usual, with Julia's pick. Thank you, Massimo. My pick is an essay. It's actually from 1985, but I just encountered it recently, so... That's prehistory. Okay. Choose it as my pick. I know! I was a toddler. <laughs> uh, so it's, it's by Douglas Hofstadter, mm-hmm. and it's called A Person Paper on Purity in Language. And I don't want to reveal too much about it because that would detract from its oomph. <laughs> but it's a it's a satirical paper, uh, basically making an argument about the about why gendered language is problematic. Gendered language and like gendered pronouns: uh-huh. he, she, um, miss versus misses. Uh, just any way that we talk differently when we're talking about men versus women. Um, And this was an issue that I had sort of, going into the essay, I had considered to be not really a big deal and kind of overblown uh, as a problem. Mm -hmm. Um, And the essay was clever enough that it sort of changed my mind. So that's all I'll say. Uh, We'll link to it from the uh, podcast site. Sounds good. Well, my pick is a book, which I actually have not, I should disclose, I haven't finished yet, but so far it's good, um, although we have a couple of caveats. (laughs) The book is The Dark Side of the Enlightenment. Wizards, Alchemists, and Spiritual Seekers in the Age of Reason by John Fleming. The, the caveat is that Fleming writes, um, it, the, the book is for the general public, but it's sometime, in, some, in some cases he does write a little bit in a sort of a slow motion, something that it's, seems to be geared more toward an academic audience. Uh, <laughs> right, but, I can see it now. Yeah, but uh, nonetheless, the topic is fascinating because you know the, we, we, refer, we refer to and we think of the Enlightenment as you know, literally the, the age of reason. We think of Voltaire and Diderot and the encyclopedia and that, that sort of stuff. But in fact, some of the very same people were also involved into activities that we today will consider occult, um, you know, um, mysterian, you know, alchem- alchemical and so on and so forth. And then there were a bunch of other people that were uh, feeding and, and learning and, and sort of benefiting, generally speaking, from the age of reason. And at the same time, they were, in fact, Engaging in things that that we would consider today completely f- as far as possible from 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 the the ideals of the alignment. So it's this interesting mm-hmm. look at a sort of a schizophrenic v- uh, view of of the alignment, where uh, yes, we were coming out of the Middle Ages, we were coming out of the, you know after the Renaissance with all well, these new ideas and science and reason, but at the same time, in fact, it was an unprecedented. Uh, Era of interest and success of notions uh, of the occult and the and the and the mysterious. So it's it's really fascinating reading uh, some of the the characters that are portrayed in the book, uh, like the Count of Cagliostro, who was one of the most famous occultists and, and uh, alchemists of the time. Uh, make of for of course he was a count. Yes, of course. Had to be. As it turns out, actually, he wasn't. But but <laughs> 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 he just thought, called himself that. Um, oh, that's even better. Yeah, it's exactly. It's even better. Uh, but you know, a lot of these figures are actually complicated, and it's they're not just as easily dismissed, you know, easily dismissed um, as one might think. And uh, it gives, uh, generally speaking, a sort of a, an alternative view, or a more more nuanced view of the whole uh, phenomenon of the alignment. Cool. I love reading things that complicate my picture yeah. of something that I thought was straightforward. That's always fun. All right. Well, this concludes another episode of Rationally Speaking. Join us next time for more explorations on the borderlands between reason and nonsense. The 
the Rationally Speaking podcast is presented by New York City Skeptics. For program notes, links, and to get involved in an online conversation about this and other episodes, please visit rationallyspeakingpodcast.org. This podcast is produced by Benny Pollack and recorded in the heart of Greenwich Village, New York. Our theme, Truth, by Todd Rundgren, is used by permission. Thank you for listening.